Hi, this is Mary Guzman with Crown Jewel Insurance, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Brian Allwine with Redwood Valuation. And I'm just going to chat with Brian about his amazing job and the company and what they do because I think um, their approach to valuation and the types of assets that they're known for valuing are something different, and we get asked a lot of questions about that. So Brian, I'm hoping that you can just, first of all, tell us a little bit about Redwood and the types of clients you serve. Yeah, Redwood Valuation was started about 15 years ago in Silicon Valley. Our founder is heavily involved in venture capital, and the team has grown since then. We're unique in that we focus almost exclusively on working with high growth companies and startups and emerging industries. Quite a few of us on the team have exited companies uh, successfully. So. Yeah, we bring uh, not just the technical evaluation expertise, but uh, real-world entrepreneurial experience as well, and then deep domain expertise in several areas of venture capital and emerging industries. Wow, that's awesome. We, we run into clients a lot of times who, first of all, don't even know that intellectual property assets, other than patents perhaps, based on licensing fees and those types of things, but that trade secrets in particular can even be valued much less, I think, um, the idea that you could value a pre-revenue company or, or a, a company that has, for example, I'll call them very esoteric assets like crypto um, or NFTs or things along those lines, um, you know, where the prediction on what's going to happen to the revenue of those types of assets in the future is kind of hard to come by. Can you share with us uh, how you look at those types of assets and particularly for pre-revenue companies? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually working with several clients uh, that are pre-revenue startups. Uh, one is going to be an electric vehicle manufacturer. So they're, they've deployed tens of millions of dollars already uh, building out their prototype. And so we're helping them with a strategic analysis to figure out what their value will be at different breakpoints as they go along. So one of the ways we do that is by taking a projection of the build-out costs that they're going to have until they're ready to roll and start generating revenue. And then we can look at what uh, market exit value will be at some point in the future and discount that back to present value. Okay. Now, um, a company like that might have a proprietary method they've developed uh, around their battery technology or a method of manufacturing or other intangible assets that are all a component of the business. And for most startups that we work with in the early stages, the main value of that business is intangible. Right, and that's super interesting. And so we know that obviously the cost that an organization has incurred so far in R&D and will continue to incur until they roll a product out kind of automatically goes into the calculation and the thought process around that value. Um, are you looking, if, if the company is giving you projections about their own expected revenue over the life cycle of a particular asset or over, say, three years, how do you parse out or how do you determine along with them and, and using other market indices or whatever, how accurate those numbers are and decide what discount factor to put on that to make it maybe a little bit more realistic if the company has pie in the sky, we're going to be the next you know, Amazon, um, trying to bring them sort of back down to reality so that, that it's more of a, a, a real number. 
Yeah, that's absolutely one of the top challenges because most people don't start a business expecting it to fail. They're optimists. They have a dream. They have a vision. They have a plan and they want to see it succeed. And so their forecasts for what this business is going to do are naturally optimistic, in some cases, unrealistically so. So it's that's where the art side of valuation comes into play much more than the science side in terms of um, reading that client and seeing if they're open to changing their projection or if they don't see the reality of the complications that are uh, arise from some of their unrealistic projections. Some, some uh, serial startup founders are very aware of that issue and they do bring us realistic projections. So some of it's gut feel and experience and then it's also comparing to market data. So. If you, for instance, this electric vehicle startup, we can look at many other vehicle manufacturing companies uh, that are have been around for a long time and plus new ones and see what their growth curves are and what their operating expense margins are and so forth. And so if you give me something that's saying we're going to be twice as profitable as any of these car manufacturers that have existed before, okay, you're going to get pushback. Right. You're going to have to be able to prove it with your own scientific knowledge and methods around that so look into my eyes i think crown jewel insurance is worth a billion dollars <laughs> am i right <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> it could be uh... <laughs> you don't have to answer that um okay so that's it that is a great answer now let's talk a little bit about um some of the growth patterns that you see so let's say you have a company that's maybe not in startup mode and they're already generating revenue um, but they're, they're coming on to market with um, a intellectual property portfolio that has both patented technology and business processes that are more in the trade secret realm. How do you separate the value of the patented assets from the trade secret? That is a great question and it's really one of the more challenging parts of the exercise because in addition to having economic benefit and control over those economic benefits, one of the primary factors uh, in scoping out a valuation project is the identifiability of the asset. So can that trade secret asset be segregated from those other assets or in what ways do they contribute to each other? If you think of, say, in the food or beverage industry where you have popular brands that have a secret recipe, so that feeds into the mystique and the value of the brand, you know, they both benefit and depend on each other. Mm -hmm. So it requires, again, experience and uh, some gut feel and art around it, as well as looking at other comparable companies to see how they segregated their values of their intangible assets. And then can the management of the company itself identify what are the discrete benefits that arise from each type of asset they have? Can we figure out what cost that particular asset is is saving the company or what boost to revenue they're getting uh, by having that particular asset right or you know and business process is a lot of a lot of times what we come up with for clients who are saying you know yes we've got a lot of patented technology in our portfolio but it's really the way that one piece of technology or several talk to and work with each other that makes it a trade seat that makes our technology different than others um, because you know that's really our secret sauce 
Yeah, and if I could interject there, so one of the things we do in that process of valuing a specific intangible asset is identify all the other assets of the company and figure out what an appropriate return on investment is for those asset values, and then that gets applied as a charge against the specific asset that we're valuing. So we'd figure out what the value of their assembled workforce is that they already have in place that they don't have to go out and recruit to replace. If there's hard assets like equipment and machinery, you look at the value of that, it requires a certain rate of return to justify its existence. The brand, we can look at methods of valuing those and figure out what rate of return is appropriate for that. And in that way, it's like putting pieces of a puzzle together to sanity check that each of these assets should have a different hierarchy of rate of return associated with them. And so it keeps things in check for making sure that one doesn't get too out of alignment with the value of the rest of the assets of the business. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. And that also speaks to why that sort of answers two questions that we get a lot or, or starts to answer two questions we get a lot. One is, what is the methodology that's used? And the response is, well, it depends on where you are in your company's life cycle and where the asset is in its own life cycle, um, whether it's pre-revenue or post, or whether it's just an just a, an efficiency play that's never gonna quote unquote generate revenue, but rather it's gonna save the company money. Um, but the second thing is that we get asked, you know, what information do we need to get from them to help you do the valuation? And, you know, we've learned over the past couple of years that it's very difficult to say at the beginning of a project, here's a one sheet piece of paper that's got every question we're ever going to need to ask you because that's just not a thing. Right. Yeah, it is not. We start with a relatively short list of questions just to identify what type of business it is, what type of trade secrets exist and what types of other intangible and tangible assets exist. And then from there there's typically a secondary list that's more focused of identifying what will be needed. But in general, we can say that we're going to want to know what other intangible assets exist, what other tangible assets exist, what uh, cost benefit or additional revenue stream are you expecting to get from this trade secret, and some type of projected um, uh, benefit stream, revenue and expense structure with and without that asset. Mm -hmm. um, the with and without method. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So some of those things we'll drill on as we go along and it can be an iterative process as we see a first pass on the projection and we see if it makes sense, we might push back on some assumptions within it and then, you know, ask additional details. Cool. Okay. One other thing that I, I kind of wanted to get on the table today um, is that it seems like you know there's a fair amount of work that goes into this valuation process on the insured's behalf in our in our world. It would be an insured or your client. Um, it's totally worth doing, in my opinion, and of course in your opinion. But I guess the, my question would be outside of trying to get trade secret insurance, which is really how we're starting the conversation, or trying to help clients mitigate their trade secret risk. Um, putting a risk management structure around trade secrets. When and why do clients normally come to you? Is it during an M&A transaction or are they, are you starting to see that just founders and um, you know creators of new technologies are wiser now to the idea that they, they can, you know, they can get more for their company or get better loans if they have higher valuations? What, what's usually the reason they're coming? 
Yeah, two come to mind right away. One you mentioned, which is mergers and acquisitions. So uh, frequently uh, when a company push, purchases another uh, for audited financial statement purposes and other reasons, they need to allocate that purchase price value across the assets that were acquired. And so that requires revaluing all the assets of that target company. Uh, another one that's quite common is around what's called transfer pricing and it's tax related. So you might have set up another entity in another state or another country that's going to own your intellectual property and then license it back to an operating entity that's say doing the actual manufacturing. And so for both economic and tax reasons, uh, you want to make sure those are valued properly so that you then have the proper rent equivalent charge on those intangible assets being uh, paid uh, between those related companies. Okay. Do you get the sense when you talk to clients today that they are, and be honest about this, that they really understand what trade secrets are? Are they mostly focused on, I just want to know what my patents are worth? I would say, at least in my personal experience, I don't even know if it gets that detailed. Uh, I have frequent conversations with startup founders who call us and want to know what their intellectual property is worth or they ask for a certain type of valuation and they don't realize they really need a different type. Um, now, there are sophisticated founders and investment teams out there who would look at it that way, but it depends on the stage. In the very early stages, it's all nebulous because you just have this bundle of ideas. And right. You may not know how it's going to play out yet, but then as you get into prototype development or a, or a representative product that you're going to start mass producing, then you should start to have more visibility. And what about what about even more mature companies? Like, say you've got somebody who's, you know, should be more sophisticated theoretically. Do you find that there's a big learning curve, or that people don't really understand intellectual property assets? Yeah, this is definitely within both law and the valuation profession and business in general, a very unique niche. Um, you know, even within valuation profession, the, the number of or percentage of professionals that would specialize in this area is, is a much smaller percentage. Yeah, uh, I, I think um, we found that people, it's sort of like cyber underwriters now, um, which is, you know, my background, you and I've chatted about that, where, you know, cyber people with that, you know, any level of experience are getting, you know, pulled in a lot of different directions and frankly overpaid, which is great for them, yay, because there's not enough supply. And I think that's, you know, kind of the same experience that you guys are looking at in the valuation space. Yeah, to go back to your question, though, in terms of companies at different stages, certainly as companies get larger and mature, then you'll see they might start to have their own in-house team or use outsource consultants and legal counsel, et cetera, to help them have a intellectual property management strategy, monetization strategy. Yeah, I, it's interesting, though, because I think you're, you sit in a different place than we do, of course. Because by the time somebody's coming to you, they already recognize that their intellectual property has significant value. That's why they're coming to you. They might not know what it is or how to parse it out, but they have the wherewithal either for tax or M&A or other purposes to be speaking to you. A lot of times when we talk to clients, um, it seems like, yes, there is an understanding, of course, that intellectual property assets are valuable. but in a lot of cases they seem like sort of an afterthought. I mean, I know that risk managers in general who are, and really boards of directors even, who are charged with 
um, you know, overseeing the risk that comes to an organization and making sure that you have a plan to prepare to try to mitigate that risk or prevent something from happening in the first place that would not allow you to hit your numbers. Um, but they're 85% focused at least on tangible assets. Um, and I just, I, you know, I think there's a great opportunity for both of us, for all of us in this split, in this space to spend a lot of time educating people and get them to think differently. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been on boards of nonprofits and worked with, you know, many business owners over my career. And what I found is it's our human nature to focus on things that we can get our head around. And so you'll sit through meetings where you spend an hour talking about just some tiny little component while completely ignoring this thing that represents 80% of your company's value right. and is the big thing that you need should be protecting and strategizing about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One other thing that I wanted to ask you is when you are brought an opportunity during an M&A transaction, how much time are you generally given to come up with the valuation? Is it usually a hair on fire type of situation? And, and, and Part B of that question is, if you had it your way, and I think I already know the answer, would you be telling people who potentially want to sell their company at some point to be thinking about this way earlier than at the time when they're on the block to be sold? Yeah, this is a constant challenge. Um, until there's a pressing reason to deal with something, it's just easier to put it off. It's like estate planning. We all know we should do it but who wants to do it? So, and same with planning for an exit. We do have clients that approach us that are thinking several years ahead. That's perfect. If you can have several years in advance, then you can make sure your books are clean, your processes are documented. It's gonna make your due diligence process and the value that you can attain on that exit so much better. Um, yeah. And the professionals you're working with are going to know you're serious about your exit and not just kicking the tires as an idea of, well, maybe I'll sell my business because all of us deal with you know, time wasters in different ways. And, and that's one of the most frustrating things is, especially for investment bankers, but even on our side to deal with someone who's going through this whole process and you get right to the finish line and then they realize there's a skeleton in the closet or nope, I'm not really ready to do this. And you just invested you know, months and months and hours and hours of professional time and right. effort. So speaking of investment bankers, um, we sort of were asked a lot of times and we believe that there are a lot of side benefits to what we're doing other than just getting the client to the point where they can insure their most, most valuable asset, which hasn't been doable before. And we're super excited about the trade secret insurance that we can offer. But other than that, um, we think that the blockchain platform we're giving our clients to use to create evidence and, and, uh, and show that there's a process around the secrecy and the identification and valuation of their trade secrets is huge. The valuation, which is where you come in, is absolutely huge um, because those two things are a big part of the paper trail that eventually will be used to both ensure those assets but also create the evidence we need to pursue enforcement litigation on the back end if there is a misappropriation event. But another benefit that we believe exists is that companies, even though, the, even though trade secret assets are an off-balance sheet asset, unless they are created during the time of an acquisition. Um, 
by knowing the value of those assets, we think we should be able to go, or the insurer should be able to go to an investment banker or a lender of any sort and say to them, we know the value of our most valuable assets. We know how well we're protecting them. We've had it audited by third parties and we have insurance for that asset. Therefore, we are much less likely to ever default on a loan that you give us because this is the whole thing that you're you're lending us the money for. There are a couple products that we know of in the market today that would respond only upon the default of a loan, but then the lender actually takes possession of those assets and gets to try to sell them in the open market. Um, and it's a very different thing. So I'm, I'm curious if you talk to investment bankers or other lenders, you know, do you think that this is a good selling point for them or are we off base here? I think it shows uh, a lot of seriousness of intent and a level of management quality that's really important that you're thinking about your business holistically and documenting every process. It's the difference between having your books and records in a shoebox versus audited financial statements. It's just night and day difference. Yeah. And I uh, think level it, of professionalism. Right. And I would say it's the difference between, you know, insuring a building that you not only is it not sprinkled and, you know, doesn't have any literal firewalls, um, but you didn't even ask the question. That's kind of how open the market is today, um, which is crazy. And so. Yeah. And even at the smaller business level, uh, the Small Business Administration will make loans on intangible assets, but they require evaluation. So it's this is not completely novel in that sense. I mean, it's it's a great new idea to take this to a different level and a different type of asset than I think has ever been handled this way. But the idea that quantifying the value of your intangible assets adds value or makes you more bankable is is patently clear because that happens. Pun intended. <laughs> I am so bad with the dad jokes. They just come unwittingly. Patently clear. Nice. Okay. Well, with that, I'm going to close our discussion. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to come to Atlanta today or Alpharetta so that we can do this in person. I'm so happy to meet you finally. It's fantastic. And for more information, I would invite everybody who's listening to go to our website at www.tradesecretinsurance.com. And as soon as this discussion is over, I'm going to ask Brian how much he thinks that URL slash domain name is worth. <laughs> Thanks for coming.